You have sent forth your spirit into our hearts, adopting us as your children so that we can now come to you with boldness. You've given us your grace through the cross so that we might be made new and share that grace with others. We pray that you would continue to make us in the image of your son, Jesus, in all that we do and all that we say. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Dear friends of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're continuing our sermon on our, our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll note, notice that earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his disciples to a radically superior kind of righteousness. He says, "For unless your righteousness surpasses surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law." you will certainly not see the kingdom of heaven. Let's be clear about something. Jesus is not commending that we bypass the Pharisees and experts in the law by seeking greater degrees of legalism, by being more fastidious in our rule-keeping. Jesus is calling us to something radically new, to the kind of righteousness that can only occur through humility and submission rather than pride or arrogance, through the only the kind of righteousness that can only occur through conversion rather than a sense of moral superiority based on our own efforts. The disciple of Jesus Christ is called to surpass the Pharisee and experts in the law in purity and simplicity of motive. In this case, Jesus is concerned less about what we do than about why we do it. And so he talks about prayer and fasting and giving to the needy. And he says when you pray and when you fast, when you give to the needy, you must always check your motives. In a nutshell, in a nutshell rather than do these acts for the favor and attention of other people, we're called to seek the single attention of God. Some people read today's gospel in a vacuum. They take, take from Jesus' words that Christianity is a private matter, that any form of public piety is wrong, any kind of corporate worship is a bad idea, or at least it's inferior to private piety. But surely this is reading far too much modernism into the text. In the Bible, religion is never a private matter. God always calls a people, a community. And G.K. Chesterton says, a person can no more possess a private religion than they can a private sun or moon. Scriptures suggest, insist, and imply that the people of God will gather together for worship, for prayer, and for works of service that they should never abandon the assembly. That is the given of Scripture. And yet having said this, Jesus is aware that corporate worship, 
that public piety has its pitfalls. Because ultimately, if Christian religion is not private, it is, it nevertheless must be personal and authentic. The trap of public piety is this. The person can easily be drawn into this act to grab the attention of other people, to draw attention to themselves. What you do before God, what you do before God in, in private is is concerned with God's attention. And so Jesus uses private piety as the motivation for public piety. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus recommends that even public acts of worship must take on the unpretentious character of acts of piety when no one is looking. You need to only be concerned about the eyes of God. Now, it seems to me that this principle cuts two ways. We can, like the, the Pharisees, use worship, public prayer, acts of charity as a way of calling attention to ourselves. Hey, look at me. Notice how much I put in the offering plate. Notice how pious-sounding my prayer is. But then there's the other side. We can also be so self-conscious in corporate worship that we fail to approach God honestly. Beyond seeking the attention of others, we can become so obsessed and intimidated by the presence of others that we still fail to seek the sole attention of God when we worship and pray. What will people think if I pray about this? What will people think of me if I raise my hands? What, if, what will people think if I express myself in worship? I continue to say this, but one of the delights of the Trinity community is the sheer variety of people and the religious expression represented here. We have Baptists who shout amen. <laughs> we have Anglicans and Catholics who make the sign of the cross. Charismatics who raise their hands. Reformed people who sit there motionless. <laughs> Being nearly comatose can be a very religious experience. <laughs> Whatever your expression of faith, it, if it's fitting for corporate worship, if it doesn't disrupt or interfere with the worship of the whole community, it's welcome in the family of God. God delights in the variety and diversity of his people. And we need to delight in that variety as well. Without forgetting that we're part of a body, we need to realize that worship is about seeking the single attention of God. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. Of course, a few acts of religious piety are more easily distorted or manipulated than others. The act of prayer is one example. Part of the problem with prayer is that I think that we've largely come to understand prayer as a form of God manipulation. Some time ago I read an article in the Detroit Free Press about how more and more people in our culture are becoming interested in spiritual things. Some are constructing altars in their homes because they have a longing for a connection with the divine even though their connections with extended families and churches have decayed and broken down. In this article, we're told 
that these folks have abandoned public religion, but instead they're looking, they're listening for the still small voice within them. Now the charm of this approach, according to the article, is that private religion doesn't make hard demands. It doesn't have high expectations, but instead it helps you connect with your true self. The article went on to offer advice about how to use prayer to get what you want out of life. The case in point in this article was using prayer to find romance. Here's what it suggests. Build an altar at home with a crucifix and two candles, one shaped like a man and one shaped like a woman. The individual is told to light the candles, to read chapter one of the Song of Songs three times, and then move the two lover candles closer and closer together. Now we're told that the process takes about a week, but within a few days you should meet the love of your life. I hope nobody just walked in at this point. I'm not, I'm not recommending this. What probably strikes us as most peculiar or even silly about this is that it seems particularly superstitious. And yet it really isn't far from where many religious folks are in their treatment of prayer. Modern Christians are infatuated with technique. We're always looking for the get-rich-quick formula or the proper method for, for personal success. There's an explosion of books in Christian bookstores that offer the perfect prescription for prayer. If God isn't answering your prayers, if he's not giving you what you want, we have the formula. Perhaps you've been praying wrong, facing in the wrong direction. You need to learn our technique for getting God's attention and ensuring that you get the stuff you want. God is portrayed as a cosmic bellhop or a genie, someone who exists to grant our wishes, to bring us room service when we want it. He's the supernatural vending machine in the sky. But today's gospel text assures us that this is not how the true God works. This is not what prayer looks like. We're not dealing with a God who needs to be reminded who needs to be persuaded or cajoled. His ego doesn't need to be stroked, and he's not interested in magic formulas. Think about the repercussions of that kind of approach to prayer. The suggestion is this, or the implication is this. God knows what you need, and he has the ability to give it to you. But but he's withholding it until you say the magic words unless you get the recipe down, until you punch in the secret code, God refuses to respond to your need. Is that really the God of the Bible? Is that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Would you say to your children, as a good parent, no supper for you unless you can guess the right number between one and a thousand? I won't stop the bleeding on that scrape in your knee until you can ask me in Latin. It's no wonder that skeptics find popular Christianity distasteful 
when they hear our preachers and teachers talking about God this way. The beginning of prayer is an understanding of the God to whom we pray. If we see God as the selfish miser who has all the goodies, but is disinclined or reluctant to give them to us, he won't won't cough them up until we say the magic words, then that will surely affect the way we pray and the way we live. And part of the reason we pray so badly, I suspect, is because we assume from the start that prayer is merely about convincing God to do what we want. Not thy will, but mine be done. We don't really care about the vending machine. All we want is the soda or candy bar. We don't want really want a personal relationship with the bellhop. We just want room service, and we want it fast. Unless, of course, getting friendly with the bellhop is the way to better service. In this view of God, God becomes a means to the end of good things rather than an end in himself. This view of God starts with the notion that what will make me happy is the stuff that God can give, the things that God has, but not God himself. And when we assume this, then we've started down the wrong road to prayer because we tend to approach everything as consumers. From the moment we start praying, we're preoccupied with what we're praying for rather than with the God to whom we address our prayer. As a religious manifestation of the selfishness of our culture, we've permitted ourselves to become absorbed in what we want God to give to us without really truly wanting God. St. Augustine compares this to the bride who falls madly in love with her wedding ring and virtually ignores the groom who gave it to her. We're prone to want the gift more than the giver. Yet Quaker writers Carol and Stephen reminds us that surely we may say with reverence that in the truest and deepest sense, God himself is the answer to our prayers. Jesus teaching on prayer challenges our naive and popular notions of prayer by challenging our view of God. This is not a God who will settle for being a means to an end. The God that Jesus reveals to us is a God who will only be satisfied in being an end in himself, in being our ultimate goal. He will only be satisfied if we seek first his kingdom. And so this is the God who insists on being the goal and the answer to our prayers and not merely the heavenly distribution center for all good things. If there's a problem with using prayer to manipulate God, there's also a problem with using prayer to manipulate people. Jesus warns that we must not pray like the hypocrites, religious types who pray to get attention for themselves, the people who stand in the synagogues or the churches, the people who stand on the street corners even, with the goal of making themselves seen by others, of reminding other people of just how pious they really are. 
These are the people who pray long and loud over their meals at Bob Evans, making sure that everyone in the restaurant, the waitresses and even the cooks, know that they're pious Christians and then leave a 37-cent tip with the bill. Oh, yes, and a gospel tract. But their public piety, by their public piety, they're seeking attention and acclaim of people. And Jesus says flatly, they may get it, but that's all they'll get. They have received their reward in full. Their prayers bounce off the ceiling. Instead, the same principle is, uh, with the same principle, which is true for uh, acts of piety and acts of charity and fasting, Jesus teaches that we must always seek not the attention of our neighbor, but the single attention of God when we do these things. We should not seek the acclaim of others, but we should seek the God who is the source of all creation. Go to a secluded place, Jesus says, and pray to the unseen Father in secret. The best test that our prayers are seeking the single attention of God is that our praying should always have the the same integrity as our private prayers. We should always pray as honestly and simply in public as we do in private. That will give us some idea that we're not putting on a show for others. In biblical culture, it was a given that people would pray in public. They would pray in the temple publicly. They would pray in the synagogues. They prayed gathered together in the church communities. Community worship was the primary context for prayer for the people of God, so much so that Jesus' original hearers needed to be reminded of the legitimacy of private prayer. Now, we're on the other end of the spectrum. We have a tendency to elevate private spirituality at the expense of corporate spirituality, and we might need to be reminded of different things. But Jesus tells us that personal prayer is the testing ground for all other prayer, for corporate prayer. Praying in private gives us the assurance that it is God's attention alone that we seek in prayer instead of the attention of others. And both public and private prayer should have the same integrity and the same purpose. This is a second example that Jesus gives of how we ought not to pray. And that comes not from the Pharisees, not from the religious types, but from the Gentiles, from the pagans. Jesus says, you must not be like the pagans when you pray. Someone who has a false view of God, who keeps on babbling with vain repetition because they think that God is impressed by their many words. They pray as if God's arm needs to be twisted, that God needs to be convinced of something. They work their acts of piety with the goal of of changing God's mind or of convincing God to do favors for us. In other words, in their view, God is distant. He's sometimes deaf. He's apathetic often. He's a powerful egomaniac who can be manipulated to do our will only when we say nice things to him only when we manipulate his name with some kind of pious formula. But Jesus assures his disciples that the point of prayer is neither informing or reminding God of what we need, because he already knows, 
nor is it convincing God to change his mind because he knows better than we do. Few things betray a low view of prayer, or rather a low view of God, than the manner in which we pray. When we pray as if God needs to be manipulated or convinced to see things our way, then in essence, we're declaring ourselves to be God. When we pray with vain repetition, we imply that God doesn't know something, that he doesn't already know our need, or that he doesn't care, but we know, but that we know best what our lives ought to look like. Therefore, our Lord Jesus calls us to a radical reform in our theology and practice of prayer by a radical reform in our understanding of God. And the prayer that he gives his disciples is truly radical. This, he says, is how you should pray. Now, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that flies in the face of both the hypocrite's prayer and the pagan's prayer because it has straightforward simplicity. There's no pretense here, and it's amazingly short. Jesus has prescribed that we not use vain repetitions or many words to approach our God, and this prayer stands as a masterpiece of prayer in less than 50 words. This prayer takes away the pretense that we must somehow wear God down by our endless repetitions, constant reminders that we still want something from him. The disciples are asked to pray this prayer in a manner that conveys their confidence that our Father knows what we need before we ask him. That is the kind of God to whom we pray. God does not need to be manipulated to follow our agenda, but in prayer, we are called to declare our solidarity with God's agenda, to declare our oneness with what God is doing in the world. And whenever we pray, our Father, even when you are home alone, we're reminded that we never pray in isolation from one another. We pray as a community of saints, our solo voice is combined with the choir of all God's people, with all the saints and martyrs through the ages who continue to seek the face of the Father. So when we approach God as Father, we're joining our voice to the whole church, and we're granted this remarkable privilege of familiarity with God because we can address him as Father. This familiarity is something in our age that we can either take for granted or abuse easily. Some of us have a tendency to assume too much familiarity with God or to assume it for the wrong reasons. We're a culture that doesn't assume, excuse me, that doesn't hesitate to use phrases about God as if he's our co-pilot or our best friend. We assume too much, but we come to know God as Father not simply because we have the capacity to approach him on our own terms, We come to God as Father because we have come to know Jesus, his Son, and the Spirit has given us new birth into this family. We've been adopted as children into the family of God, not a basis for presumption, but a basis for thanksgiving. We've become heirs to the kingdom of God, but none of this is our own doing. It's been through the sacrifice of of the Son that we've been given the Spirit, and that helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. 
So for us to be able to call God Father means that we stand in the shoes of Jesus himself, that we're asking him to look upon us as he would his only son. And this is a great privilege for Christians, but it's also a duty. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself, as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now as our Father. We're not free to decide how we think about God or how we address him. We're not free to decide that we can call God whatever we want. We're compelled to say of God only what God has said of himself. And so when we pray our Father, we say something about our connection to him by nature of his redemptive work, by nature of his revelation of himself to us. And we're reminded that it is only in his family and in his inheritance that we're able to call upon his name. When we pray our Father, we're declaring our solidarity with all of God's people, our desire that this prayer become true for all of God's children, that this family, God's family, is now the defining family in our lives, that we cease to be controlled by the brokenness and dysfunction of our experiences in life and the, the results of, of pure biology, but we're now part of a new family that shapes our new identity, people who come to God equally as father, people who have the same parent. Jesus gives this prayer to his children as a reminder that we have solidarity with God's people. But he gives this prayer to his children also as a way of reminding us that prayer is something we need to learn. We can't assume that we immediately know how to address God. Dostoevsky said, prayer is an education. And the Lord's Prayer is an education in what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a child of God. Church Father Tertullian wrote, the Lord's Prayer is the epitome of the whole gospel. Encapsulated in these 50 words, we have the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we close this sermon, I'm going to conclude by praying an interpretation of the Lord's Prayer. And I would ask you to close your eyes and listen, that you would make this the prayer of your heart, but even more so that it should become the prayer of your life. I invite you to come to this prayer asking not for more stuff from God, not that God will finally see things your way, but that he would change you into the sort of person who desires his will, someone who seeks God alone as the answer to your prayers. So let's spend a few moments in silence together, and then I'll pray. Be reminded that you'll be able given an opportunity to pray a bit later as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. But this morning, I would just simply like you to listen. Let's pray together. Our Father, not some miserly stranger who needs to be convinced of our need, but a loving parent who is always ready to respond to his child. 
our Father, the one in heaven, not the God of my imagination or speculation, not the God that I can drag down to my level, but the God who is above me, beyond my expectations, in sovereign control of all things. May your name be set apart as holy. Lord, our first request is not that we get what we want, but that your reputation would be set apart, distinguished by how you answer our prayers, that people would truly see you as loving Father, May your kingdom come. Lord, my second request is that you would be in control without me pulling the strings or manipulating, without me calling the shots from the sideline. May your rule become a reality. Your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Lord, my third request is that the outcome of this prayer would not be the fulfillment of my limited desires or plans, but of your perfect plan and that you would be king over all things in my life, in the lives of others, and the life of this world. Three things I ask for myself and for others. Give us today our daily bread. Lord, sustain us simply so that we would not despair with too little or become forgetful with too much. Forgive us our debts in the measure that we forgive the debts of others. Lord, keep us from the presumption that we deserve what we've been given and others do not. Make us instead as generous to those who owe us little as you have been to us who owe you much. Do not put us to the test, but save us from the evil one. Lord, we need your help above all to keep us from the powers that would destroy us. We know that under your care, Father, we're safe. Within your kingdom, we're secure. This we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.